Welcome to Insurance for or Against Smart Driving Cars. Hi, I'm Fred Fishkin. Thank you for being with us to watch or listen. We hope you're staying healthy. This event is made possible in part by support from the Smart Transportation and Technology ETF. Find out more at MotoETF, M-O-T-O-E-T-F dot com. We have a terrific lineup, starting with our provocateur, Michael Scrudato, Senior Vice President and Innovation Leader at Munich Re America, with responsibility for the future of mobility. Munich Re is a major provider of property and casualty insurance and reinsurance. Our panel of sharks includes the Faculty Chair of Autonomous Vehicle Engineering at Princeton University, Alan Kornhauser, from Allianz, Jacques Amsalem, heads the newly created Internet of Things Department and is also Director of Telematics. He's also spent many years working with the European Commission on regulatory issues surrounding connected and automated mobility. From the RAND Corporation, Attorney and Senior Policy Analyst Carlin Stanley. Carlin is Principal Author of RAND Report, Compensating the Injured, Evaluating the Impact of Autonomous Vehicles on Automobile Insurance, due to be released soon. Jane Lappin is co-chair of the Automated Vehicle Symposium and has recently retired from the Toyota Research Institute. And Jerry Luton, retired transit planning director and professor and currently principal investigator on a bus collision avoidance and automated braking project for the Washington State Insurance Pool. Our moderator is Compass Transportation and Technology President and Founder Dick Mudge. Dick? Thank you, Fred. I'll waste no time. I'll turn it over to Mike to get started with a uh, talk to get us all excited about this topic, as long as you promise not to answer all the questions. Well, I'll, thanks, Dick. And I will start with you know, insurance. Are we for or against uh, smart driving cars? I, I think it's pretty clear that the insurance industry is, is for this technology. I mean, these the safety benefits alone um, are worth it. And a lot of People ask me, you know, well, won't insurance go away? You know, what are you going to do? Why would we care? But, you know, at Munich Re, you know, the future of mobility is one of the pillars of our innovation efforts um, in the U.S. And, and globally. And we believe that there's a tremendous safety benefits in not only the ADAS technology that's available today, both being built into vehicles and on an aftermarket basis, but also with the adoption of level four, level five uh, vehicles. And while traditional auto insurance might evolve and change, you know, we believe that as it evolves, as it changes, it creates new opportunities for new types of insurance products, risk management services. I see Jacques is starting to nod already. Exactly. (laughs) You know, because, you know, what's happening is, is the liability, you know, traditional auto liability, it will still, we think it will still be there. I mean, there will still be car crashes, um, but there are new types of liabilities that evolve. Uh, the more connected, the more autonomous vehicles become. You introduce liabilities such as cyber liability, products liability exposure. These are typically not risks that are covered in an auto policy. So we're uh, working to evolve our products, evolve our services to to keep up with that. And you know, the exciting part about this is that these new areas of insurance, you know, they will be smarter or more data-driven insurance products, you know, that will give more insight, more um, transparency into the risks that we're covering. And 
we think that the pricing models will evolve to adopt to take that data that we're getting from a connected vehicle or quantifying the safety of some of the safety technology that's in an ADAS enabled vehicle or, you know, building, you know, the right type of risk premium for uh, an autonomous vehicle. Jacques, you know, that's kind of the premise that that I've seen, you know, carriers here in the States and some of the work we're doing at Munich Re. Um, How do you see it over from your side of same, same way, same way, exactly. I would say that, um, of course, automated and, and smart driving cars are, a, I would say, a, a wonderful uh, opportunity and, 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 they, and they promise to, to, be, to be very, very good from a safety point of view. Now, we have to be patient as well. So we have to, to see, to learn, to understand. And to do that, data is going to be the key element. So uh, we have to make sure that the data that those cars generate, and they generate a lot of data, is going to be made available, is going to be shared, so we can price those risks accordingly, fairly for the drivers. You know, we will, we will have time to discuss that this evening, but you know, not all technologies <laughs> are mature enough to guarantee a real uh, reduction in claims and severity and, and frequency. So um, definitely, uh, the, the the big topic now in Europe is about data. It's it's no longer whether you know automation is is going to bring some value. I mean that's clear for everyone. But we we have to nail it down to understand. And I think the entire autom- automotive industry is also going in this direction. So we see. I think we've passed the first hype. Now we are in a more stable, more consolidation uh, way to, to, to look at that, which is very good. Yeah. No, and, I, and I think, you know, that an important part of that data question and something that the insurance industry has, has a lot of is lost data. You know, it's how can we take advantage of the lost data that we have to try to determine how many of, of these crashes are, are preventable? You know, and one of the things that we've done is we've taken our you know, lost data for many of our clients and through a tool we've developed called Loss Detect. And it's a text mining tool that reads the causes of loss, you know, descriptions. And from that, we are trying to estimate which crashes are preventable versus not preventable um, through technology that exists today um, and, and potentially tomorrow. And what we have found is, you know, we've evaluated over $5 billion of commercial fleet losses and found that over two-thirds of those are potentially preventable through ADAS technology that's available today. You know, forward collision warning, automated emergency braking, lane departure warning, um, even something as simple as a rear backup camera. And we're doing this not only to help quantify the safety benefits, but, but also help to show carriers, show insurance brokers, show fleets that there is an ROI for investing in the safety technology. And you know, the key is just trying to find the right technology for the right vehicle. And, and I think that's um, another part of the challenge. Sure. Yeah, but Michael, uh, you're doing a great job in the commercial fleet, but but what about in the in the personal fleet? I, I mean, you know, the the Gecko and 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 the Flow, <laughs> they're not out there so, saying, uh, "Hey, go go get a, the best car that has the best uh, um, uh, uh, collision avoidance, automated collision avoidance system," and uh, we'll really uh, we'll really give you a discount. Uh, they're saying, "Hey." Uh, plug in this little thing so that we can see how you drive and then based on how you drive we're gonna we're gonna go give it when's when's the insurance industry really going to lead 
I, I know you're leading in the commercial side. What about the, you know, the stuff that, that, that we buy and, and we use? Yeah. We've done Michael. it for retail. Oh, Jacques, go ahead. Jacques, no, no, I, I was just going to answer. I mean, we, we've done it for retail since many years, more than 10 years. You know, put this little box in your car, we'll collect information, and, and thanks to that, we can give you a discount. And we also yeah, give discounts up front. But that's the box that tells me how I drive. It's not the box that's going to drive for me in case oh. I, I begin, I misbehave. Uh, because as yeah, we know, right. these aren't just crashes. They're, they're, okay. they're misbehaviors yep. by individuals. Okay. I tailgated, you know, somebody. Yeah. I, uh, you know, yeah. drove across a double line when there's a car coming, coming my way, uh, coming in the opposite direction. Those, those aren't, aren't, you know, human errors, they're misbehaviors. And, yep. and so when are we going to, you know, put systems in and, and you and you guys promote systems that are, in fact, going to go out there and uh, and really uh, not let me do that? Yeah. You know, I, I think, as Jacques said, you know, a lot of it is getting the data to quantify those benefits. And, you know, while frequency has gone down with this technology, unfortunately, what we've seen is, is its severity has gone up. You know, the minor fender bender that, that used to be, you know, something that was likely within a policyholder's deductible, a couple hundred dollars. That's now a, a few thousand dollars to repair because of the additional equipment there. Um, so I think it, it's getting there. The more vehicles that are equipped with this technology, the, the more data that, that's available. Our, one of the biggest challenges, um, I think, across the industry is knowing what technology is on what vehicle you know it's not unfortunately it's not encoded into the vin and you know and in most makes and models of cars this technology pack these technology packages are optional you know so i think as you see they become more and more standardized and knowing where and when this technology is being used i think that will accelerate the adoption of something we're talking about terminology and definition, not only whether there is an AEB, but which AEB, how it works, what its its performance as well. Because not all AEBs are the same, and that, that's that's big, big issue we're facing uh, when it comes to, to, to providing incentives, as, as Anna mentioned before. We have released a couple of products for testing in some markets, and we had, I would say, a rather small sample, so we, we, it was a few, a few thousand vehicles. And we have not seen major, major difference in the, on the claims. I would say on, on, on the combined ratio of, of those of those uh, of those profiles that we have uh, that we have insured uh, for the time being. So maybe we are not we were not lucky. Though those uh, those vehicles were different or whatever. But I think it's worth. I mean, we, we really need to build up. Um, one other aspect I wanted to mention, and then I, I stopped talking because I've been talking a lot. <laughs> that. Uh, is that the data is critical, is, is absolutely mandatory to improve the systems as well for the design of the cars. I think that we're talking insurance here, but it's also a really critical aspect for the OEMs, for the equipment manufacturers to improve the technology, to, to make it better, um, which, is, which is really needed today. Yeah. So, so I have a question for Mike and, and Jacques um, about the on-ramp that you foresee as we move towards increasingly automated vehicles for levels four and five, you'll need certain kinds of data 
in order to write insurance policies. You presume a certain kind of, of, of market, a certain kind of business model. You must have, at least I think you must have in mind, stages that you'll go through uh, for different level four, level five approaches, whether it's fleets, fleets, commercially owned fleets for mobility as a service or privately owned vehicles where they flip a switch and they have level four. What kinds of data will you need to support products to write policies for those different approaches? So, Jock, if you don't mind, I'll start. You know, I think. Of course not. Go ahead. No, go. So I think you know. So traditionally, when you think of insurance telematics, so let's talk about you know the black boxes or, or the apps that that we're using. Um, you know, it, it's pretty standardized. You know, what does the insurance industry look like? You know, you're looking at acceleration. You know, hard breaking, hard cornering, speeding. If you're on an app, maybe you're looking at, at distracted driving. Um, you know, some of that is relevant to a level four, level five vehicle. But the more exciting aspect is, well, what else can you do beyond just that traditional telematics data? And some of what we're looking at, it's, you know, what's the ODD? You know, where is the vehicle operating? And what is the riskiness of the environment that it exactly. is operating on? Exactly. And where it, and where it's allowed to operate. Um, that's one of the, the, the big, you know, things that we're exploring at Munich Re. Jacques, anything? Yeah, well, I, I just wanted to say that all you mentioned, of course, are, are the important data points, but we also need trip data, contextual data, information about the cars, as, as was mentioned before in, in the previous exchange. It is absolutely critical to understand which technology is implemented in this in this car? Which software update has been done recently? So we know also which which software version was running in the car in case of accident. We need accident data. They are actually being regulated now in Europe. I think they they, they are already uh, part of the of the US regulation, but uh, it's it's happening also in Europe, where we will know actually things such as. Uh, when the car tries to hand over to the to the driver, so not not, not so much on level four or five, but on, on lower levels where there is this exchange of you know control between the car and the driver, we need to know exactly how the process works. So you know whether the car asks the driver to pick it up, how many times, how long did the driver take to react, uh, what happened after. Of course, collision information as as detailed as possible. And and potentially, you know, some other, you know, video footage and things like that. So at that point, we're getting quite close from whatever information will be required for um, product design and, 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 and quality control. But actually, that's the same thing, because the more and more we're going to ensure the technology, not not so much the driver and the, I would say the basic mechanics of the car. Let me turn to Carl and first ask if you have any comments on all this, because you've been very active in the field. And I know you just, <laughs> just finished a major study. If you can give us a quick summary of it, uh, uh, no PowerPoints allowed. Well, <laughs> sure. Well, first of all, 
it's interesting. Our discussion so far has hit on a lot of the key points and findings within our study. For example, of the importance of but uh, we also touched on the importance of or the likelihood that there will need to be uh, cyber uh, insurance. And the, we interviewed uh, well over 35 people, OEMs, startups, consumer advocates, academics, insurance companies, federal and state regulators, fleet owners, so a wide variety of people. One of the interesting observations that the majority made was that they felt that the current uh, insurance framework is flexible enough to adapt to the introduction of autonomous vehicles. However, once we reach maybe a level four or five, the groups of people we spoke with thought that there might be a need to adapt the framework more significantly. And interestingly, we, we talked also to regulators and insurers in the UK, Canada, Australia, and Japan, and found out how they were trying to adapt their insurance frameworks. And to your point, Michael, um, in the UK, Japan, and Canada, they are all exploring methods of data sharing, sure. um, manufacturers and insurers and other stakeholders. So these are, these are issues that seem to be very cross-cutting. So I'll, I'll leave it at that for the moment, but happy to, to tell you more about the report. So, so if I'm a, a, a fleet owner and somehow I've developed a system uh, and I've defined an operational design domain in which I want to put service out there without a driver and really provide mobility as a service with this, which is uh, level four. It'll never be level five because that assumes everywhere and that's never going to happen, but forget. Within my operational design domain, how do I, what do I have to do to prove, prove to insurance entities to give me some coverage, or do I have to self-insure? Where, where do you think it's going to go? I, I'll, Michael, any of you? Yeah, I, I don't think you'll need to self-insure. I mean, we're, no. we insure t- uh, companies today that, that are testing Same this here. technology and in some cases um, you know, operating you know, in a very narrow use cases in level four. Yeah, but but, but what what am I going to have to what would what would a company have to show you such that you uh, I know you you can come up with a number but the number may be you know whatever uh, a reasonable number I mean what do you think they're going to have to show forget what they need to show the government what are they going to have to show to the real people who are going to have to provide uh, uh, provide the, really the wherewithal to go out there and, and put a service out there that provides the mobility that these systems um, are supposed to provide well I, I think what they need to show to their insurance company and now this this is my opinion here yeah sure it, of course it's, 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 that's exactly it's, what we want more importantly, it's, it's my opinion and not that of munich Reese. yeah but, okay great no, but <laughs> what what they need to show to their insurance company is likely less than they will need to show to other stakeholders in this ecosystem because insurance is not a promise that nothing will go wrong if that were the case there would be no car crashes and there would be no house fires and i mean so insurance is a promise to pay when something will go wrong so what we're trying to do is determine 
how do we calculate a premium that you know covers the losses and our expenses and allows the industry to m- make a little bit of profit which in you know auto insurance over the past decade it has not done so you know what we're trying to do is get enough transparency that we can charge a risk adequate premium we're we're not trying to say okay your vehicles will never ever crash i think there's other stakeholders in, in out there that probably have a much higher bar than the insurance industry. Jock. Yeah, if, if I may just step in. Uh, well, when it comes to what we've done in Alliance, actually, we have been going quite quite far in the collaboration with those companies who, who were looking for insurance coverage on, on those kind of vehicles, and, and we have insured a few of them. So uh, what we've done is that we have spoken with them. We have done... I mean, it wasn't as far as audits, but we, we have been working with them on, sure. you know, asking questions. How did you test your product? Do you ensure this? How, how do you control the speed? How do you control this parameter, that parameter? I mean, that's why insurers also need people like me and Michael to, 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 to know about it, because otherwise then it would be uh, insuring with, uh, with uh, <laughs> being blind, you know, so that, that's not what we want. We want to know about the risk and best ways to understand the technology as well, and is to speak with the producer. We have constant relationship with the OEMs. I mean, in Munich, we have a test lab where we crash cars all year long. And, and this is what we do. We work together with the OEMs to understand how their technology behaves, how performing it is. And the consequence of that is a potential discount or a better rating for those vehicles who have proven to be more efficient, safer, and, and, and better than the others. Do you perceive that you'll have a, 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 a disengagement rate in the operational design domain that you have to get better than and demonstrate that with an attendant on board. And once you do that, Hey, you can go and take the attendant out. Is that the kind of thing that you think? I mean, or is that too pragmatic or by too simplistic or go ahead? I don't think it's a, you know, I don't know if disengagement rate is the right. <laughs> well, you know, I threw that out there because that, that should generate a bunch of comments, you know, whatever. But go ahead. That's not the parameter, exactly. Yeah. And I think, you know, just to build on what Jacques said, I, I think there's, you know, in these early days as it evolves, it, it's there's got to be some collaboration between the insurance carrier and the insured. You know, I think it's, it's dangerous to just, you know, put out capacity and, not have that type of collaborative relationship between the companies that you're insuring as they're making their way through this process. Is there any role for the government in any of this? Or is this something that's best to have the government stay out of? Of course. I mean, in in Europe, actually in France, uh, the the government came up, I mean, it's still not passed, but they came up with a proposal for certification of those um, level four and fives. And, and uh, the certification involves all kinds of testing and validation and, and, and things like that. And it's going to be likely the same thing uh, at um, EU level. Right. And, yeah. in the U- uh, and in the UK, there's definitely going to be a, a list. I don't know that it's been exactly. operationalized yet, but it's going to be a listing of yeah. all vehicles that are, are functioning at the level four or five yeah, and I, you know, look at look at look at the news from from last week. USDOT came out with their their AV test, you know, framework. Kudos and kudos to them for doing it. I mean, it's great sure. to see that that step being taken. 
Yeah, we need that. We need that definition. But is that just so you have something to point to? It's their fault if it, if um, if something goes wrong. They said that we were going to be okay. I know you can't answer that. Never mind. So, so I want to I want to bring us back in, into further into the future, Mike and Jacques, where we're looking at uh, mobility as a service, where the vehicle has a, a defined ODD you know, and takes members of the public together, strangers in a closed vehicle from point A to point B. Does that introduce new kinds of liabilities, new opportunities for you to write uh, particular policies to the fleet owner, for the individuals? How would that, how does that work? Excellent question. Mike, you want to start? Yeah, I mean, well, look, what that's doing, it's building upon, you know, Ride, you know, it's the way we insure, you know, Uber and, and Lyft today, which is a derivative of how you insured a taxi company in in the past, and, and this is the next step in that, you know. So, really, the way Uber and Lyft, you know, we're insuring the platform, and that platform provides, you know, the insurance to the drivers while they're on it, and. When you remove the driver, there is still that platform that my hypothesis would be that that platform will still need to purchase insurance to cover the liabilities of its operations. Now, once you remove the driver, okay, it's it's probably more than just auto liability. You know, as I said earlier, there's probably a combination of, you know, products liability exposure there, cyber liability exposure there. Um, criminal, so, criminal liability? Yeah. yeah. You know, it's, um, so it's, you know, you know, so I, I, I think, and I think it's an, it's an evolution. Most of the, 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 most of the exposures that we're talking about and the coverages that you need are are just, they exist today. It's just, you're putting them together differently. And if I want, if you're just building up on that and and to further answer your question, Jane, um, I mean, we came up also with riders insurance. Uh, we, we've done that. We just released one for um, electric scooters in, in, in Europe and, and in some other places as well. And what this is, is is about an insurance to cover whatever risks that come on top of the liability of the company who rents you the scooter. And that would be the same thing for the, for, for, for the riders of shared vehicles, uh, shared cars uh, or automated cars. We provide insurance, for example, to, and it's kind of, you know, it's between insurance and assistance, actually. Uh, Allianz is also a, a major assistance provider, one of the largest in the world. And the assistance consists is, is on, on, on providing the insurance that you will reach your destination. So in case the car breaks down, in case the driver or the car has an accident or something, we can send you, can dispatch you another vehicle to take you to where you want to be. We can insure your luggage in case you lose them or they get stolen in the, the shared car. We can provide, I mean, would say all kinds of services as well that come on top. The interesting bit of that concept is that insurance will not be only on the car or the company who provides the service, but part of the insurance cost will also be borne by the rider which can also make the insurance more affordable for the, uh, for the, uh, uh, the, the company who, who provides a service. So, th- yes, there is an evolution in the and, coverage. And, and do we, as consumers, estimate that we spend sufficient amounts of time as riders 
to merit buying a policy or is it presented to us in the moment that we mount the vehicle and we accept it or we don't accept it ride by ride it is part of the of the of the of the the the, the rights rate so it's like when you when you buy a tv for example there is a product liability involved with that tv now the, the product liability is paid by the manufacturer of the TV. You, you don't see any of that. You don't have a special insurance that you have to sign off when you buy the when you buy the TV. But it is there. So the, the company who designs the products and manufactures the products and brings it to you has to have that product liability coverage. Exactly the same thing happens for the cars. Now the difference is that as a rider, you need to have an additional coverage because the risks linked to the way you will use the car may be different because of what we said before. You're taking a shared vehicle because you want to go fast to a specific place at the airport because you need to catch your plane. If for any reason the car breaks down or whatever happens, you need to have another car that comes and picks you up to, to take you there very quickly. Yeah, and, and Jane, just to, you, you, you talked about you know the turning on, turning off insurance, and I saw something pop into the Q and A just as you asked the question. Someone else asking about that, but it, it's you know right now I I think you know it's there are some insure tech startups working on it. You know, it's 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 a, a new trend, but you know I think it's still too early to tell whether this really takes off. Uh, speaking as a consumer of insurance. I mean, how many people out there really like to think about their insurance? I don't think many people do. And if I have to sign a risk, a well, risk waiver or buy insurance each time I hop on yeah, a scooter, not, you know, it's not, an interesting. Right. No, no, yeah. no. That's not necessarily an insurance question. It's more of a consumer behavior question or consumer mm. journey question. You know, what's more appealing to the consumer? And I, you know, as a again, as an insurance consumer, look, I, I don't want to, have to think about do I turn my insurance on or off. I just want to know, you know, if something bad happens, my policy is, you know, I'm going to be covered. Michael, I've got a question for you. Um, what about bundling? One of the things we heard in talking to the people we interviewed was that potentially insurance could be bundled in the sale of new AVs. And this would be particularly for individual consumers. The idea being that this would create a greater confidence in the consumer that the, the autonomous vehicle was being backed by insurance coverage, et cetera. So this would be a positive thing for the sale of autonomous vehicles. What do you think about that? I, I think that's not unique to autonomous vehicles. I think you're seeing a lot of automakers explore this concept of, of bundling or embedding insurance with the vehicle, whether it's you know, a purchase or whether it's a subscription that, oh, you know, you're going to pay X dollars a month, you get access to a, a, a Cadillac or a Volvo or, you know, pick your vehicle and insurance comes with it and maintenance com comes with it. So that's a trend that I'd say you're seeing the OEMs, I'd call it experiment with because you know I've, I've seen some programs start and stop and, and, and restart. I don't think they've quite figured that out, but certainly it's the idea of embedding insurance with the vehicle. It, it's a trend that we're monitoring pretty closely, and again, not unique to just 
autonomous vehicles. Well, Tesla may go there because they think that their vehicles are a heck of a lot safer and and the liability, expected liability associated with them is a lot more than what your actuaries have figured out. And they might think that, hell, might as well bundle it and make some money off of it, blah, 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 right? And because they have the data alone. That, that they, have the data. they have the they data. They have the data. I mean, they have, absolutely. And they have whatever data and they should exactly. know okay exactly, oh. <laughs> exactly but but just just to just to build up on michael's uh, answer to 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 carlin i don't think having an insurance is a promise that everything will go well having an insurance is a, is a promise that in case things go wrong you will be materially compensated and and, and this needs to be very clear it's not because a car is insured that it's not going to have a crash and it's not because it's insured that it is good technology and then the development has been done properly. You know, insurance is business like another one. And if you come to me, I price your risk, as was mentioned before. I evaluate the risk. I tell you this is how much you need to pay me to cover your risk, period. It, it's, I mean, I understand that from a consumer point of view, uh, it may add value um, if it's well part, uh, packaged and, and, and marketed, as, as uh, Elon mm-hmm. does very well. He says, I'm so sure that my car, you know, he makes the correlation mm-hmm. himself. Exactly. But it, it, it is not, I mean, it is self-certification. I mean, no, nobody has been able, I mean, no third party has been able to test and challenge that statement. And I think this is what we're missing in the industry today. Hopefully, yeah, we're starting to get some some people from the, from the audience, I want to bring them on. But first, uh, Jerry, you should talk about the project you're doing. You're, you're, this is... Um... Sure, thank you. Um, well, I've been working in the transit industry for about 40 years. People love to sue us. And we love- <laughs> That's yeah. true. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, the bus industry gets about 6,000 crashes a year. We have about 100 fatalities and about 16,000 injuries. And for the last year, we have data available. Uh, the casualty and liability expense for the transit bus industry was $671 million. Now, that may not be much compared to the private auto insurance company, but it's a lot for us, especially because we don't make any money. Sure. Um, I've been working with the Washington State Transit Insurance Pool in the state of Washington, they insure 25 different transit agencies. And they began looking, began looking at this, at this as, as a, a, a loss, loss prevention, prevention kind of, kind a, of. A, a study. And we started out looking at collision avoidance technology. And now we're going into the next stage. And we've got, we've got federal support from the, from the Department of Transportation to look at automated emergency braking. And for us, the data is, is pretty available we were able to go and look through claims. Uh, I think Michael had talked about that. I know I looked, uh, and, a, and a team of a couple other guys, we looked through about $53 million worth of claims, and we figured that uh, 35% could be prevented with forward collision avoidance, and another 30% could be, could be avoided in terms of pedestrian detection. And that, coupled with the fact that we were talking about 80,000 vehicles out there, not in just Washington, but nationwide. So we're talking about casualty and liability expenses per bus on the order of six to seven thousand dollars per year. And you got to keep a bus for 12 years. So that's a lot you're paying out over the life of the vehicle. And 
So we can, we can use that as a benchmark in order to look at the technology. And we found that, that we were getting some pretty good results just, just with warning drivers. Although a lot of the drivers didn't like it. It did change their, their performance. Now we're going into the next phase, which is actually looking at automated emergency braking. And there was some discussion earlier about the role of the government. And it would have been very helpful for us had the government stepped in, first of all, with more funding. Obviously, we did get some, but also with standards, because we're kind of making things up as we go along. And we're getting to a point where we now are going to be faced with what, how safe is safe enough and how do we make go, no-go decisions on just testing with live passengers? Our problems are somewhat different from, from others because uh, other passengers and cars are belted in. We have passengers who are standing up. We have all ages. We have a lot of different situations, and we're operating in urban traffic. So there's a lot of promise for the technology. On the personal side, in 2018, I decided to get rid of my old cars and, and get new cars with as many features as I could. And I love it. You know, it, 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 it makes up for a lot of my deficiencies. I will. <laughs> okay. Um, I, I want to try to get some, some people from the audience on. Uh, yeah, Roger Longtoat is active in this field and I'm sure has questions. I've seen questions going along on the chat box to he just disappeared. Oh, there he is. He's back again. Wow. Roger, did you want to ask one of your a question of somebody sure. or, or ask a question of everybody? Hi, Jacques. Good to see hey, you. Hey, Roger. Good to see you again. It's been too long. Is that a COVID beard or have you had it for longer than that? Ah, well, it's a COVID one. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So uh, I have a whole bunch of questions. Some of them were in the chat already. But uh, one that comes to my mind is every time someone driving a Tesla vehicle uh, has a mishap, it seems like uh, good old Elon has perfect access to the information, which he invariably uses against the driver of the vehicle. But it doesn't seem like the driver has access to that same data or video. Uh, so how about um, some standards around access to your own vehicle data and video? Uh, so true. Yeah. yeah. So true. Uh, also, so true. I'm, I'm curious whether uh, one of my little beefs isn't on the full AV side of things. It's more on the ADAS side of things, and that is – Insurance companies in the U.S. almost universally, not quite, but almost, are not as advanced as European uh, insurers from the standpoint of providing discounts for vehicles that have automatic emergency braking, blind spot detection, lane departure warning, or lane keeping technology. Uh, I think we'd have better equipped cars here in the U.S. Uh, if the insurance industry was a little bit more proactive. What uh, is Alliance doing anything in this uh, area? Yes, we are. Yes, we are. I mentioned it briefly before. So to, to, add, to answer your first point, Roger, that, that is part of the big discussions we're having with the, with the European regulators to make sure that the individual is actually uh, in control of his data and is the first one to decide uh, which data goes where and for which purpose. So th the first thing that should happen is that they, when you buy a smart car with whatever kind of you know connectivity and features, you should be told as a owner uh, what this car generates in terms of data and where it goes and for which purpose. And that's the first step. And you can decide whether you want this to happen or not. 
first point. Second point is, is that you as an individual should be able to access that data that's part of the um, GDPR regulations or the general data protection regulation uh, that you can claim uh, your data to the, the what is called the data processor uh, at any point in time and you cannot refuse to give you that information. So uh, I, I think the example you gave with, with Tesla is, an, is unfortunate. I'm, I'm, I'm very, I would say, pleased and sorry every time I hear I, I, I hear about that because I think that's not fair. As simple as that. I mean, if, look, if the driver was not driving the car, there would be no data. Period. So he is the one who, who or she, sorry, uh, is the one who generates that information. So he should be, I mean, it doesn't, it, it, it doesn't mean that he should have access to tons and tons of information, you know, four terabytes or whatever the car produces every day. It, it doesn't mean it has to, to happen all the time. But in case he wants to, he should be able to do that. I think that's absolutely critical. Just, no, uh, discounts for ADAS. Yeah, and, and discounts for ADAS, we've done it. I, I mentioned that before. We've done it in a few countries. I mean, we have it in Germany since many years. We've developed uh, together with uh, Volkswagen a product that provides uh, discount insurance for ESP. Uh, we have, in France, experimented with, with a small, I would say, um, small amount of customers, a, a possible discount. It was actually 25% discount on the, on the insurance are, are regulate Are regulators helping or are these insurance nope. commissioners being a problem? No, that, that regulators yeah. are not stepping into that. It's, it's, a, it's a decision of the company, of each company. Um, it, it may happen later on, but, but it, it's not the case now. Yeah, and, and, and I think the, the regulators, they're, they're, they want to see data supporting any type of exactly. rates that you're following. And in, in the U.S., you've got 50 different regulators that you need to provide that yeah, data of course. to. Yeah. Um, well, I think talking, yeah, talking about the regulators and the government is interesting. Jerry talked about the need for government to set safety standards. Now you're talking about regulators. You know, Carlin, in your study, did that come up at all? That there should be a role for government for set, defining safety or setting regulations? To oh, help, definitely. Uh, and, and actually, going back to the, to the data issue, we, we were very interested in finding out what was going on. So federal regulators and, and what might be in the in the near future, uh, a framework for sharing that kind of data. And what we learned was that, hey Ellen, uh, we learned that the DOT is basically monitoring the situation, hoping that industry can uh, determine a way forward. But I think that they're keeping a, a careful eye on on how industry may work out the, the sharing between OEMs and insurance uh, stakeholders and probably will try to find a way to step in, but does not want to. Well, well, the DOT has been funding research on UBI because they find that anybody who participates in UBI program drives less, drives uh, in a more, in a safer fashion. And so you get less traffic, less congestion, less emissions. For studies, anyway, they're they're fostering studies of this. Yes. Before we turn to Alan and to ask the question, I have to admit I'm I'm very worried about Alan because this is the 
quiet as you've ever been on one of these sessions. So, are you okay? Do we need to call nine one one? No, uh, it, uh, I I have uh, too many comments. I think uh, okay. to, to well, champion the, to 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 give a um, a little bit of help to the uh, insurance industry. I, I like to say that the insurance industry has been burned in the past with safety. Um, uh, because because the past definition of safety was crash mitigation and associated with great improvements in crash mitigation, which made people uh, not lose their lives in, in cars. It cost the insurance industry an enormous amount uh, because uh, the airbags uh, went off and uh, all the stuff got broken and the, cr- the crush zones got crumpled and you had to throw away the car and so on and so forth. But the person lived. And Are you going to make us feel sorry for the insurance no, industry? No, absolutely. So, so they, I mean, they were burned tremendously. Uh, and as we all know, what we can't say that, in fact, if you live, uh, uh, never mind, I won't say it. Everybody knows what it is. Um, so uh, I don't need to say it. So, therefore, it, it, of course, has to come a little bit timid as to whether or not this ADAS stuff really works. All to find out that the ADAS stuff doesn't, you know, disregards uh, objects that are stationary in the lane ahead and oh. assumes that you can pass underneath them. And but I know where you're headed to next. Do that, you know? I know and where you're headed next. And I did, how expensive I did that it is? I how expensive it is? How expensive it is to repair those systems? I know that's coming next. Absolutely. So you know. So of course <laughs> the the insurance industry has been has been a little bit uh, you know afraid of this. But but the key of all this, at least what keeps me pumped up on it is it's focused on avoiding the crash in the first place so you don't have any crumpled uh, stuff you don't have an airbag exploded you don't have an ambulance chaser you don't have a lawyer you don't have a uh, an emergency uh, uh, hospital whatever and and that's the key and the key to do that is somebody has to sit over the the misbehaving driver and say, hey, you can't do that, and, and you, you can't tailgate, you can't excessively speed, you can't, uh, what do you mean? I mean, that's why I bought that, but it's supposed to be a, a privilege, uh, not a right, and whatever, and, and we haven't gone there, and we have to get there as a society to cut this misbehavior that's happened on the roadways and the road rage that takes place. Never mind. So that's all I need to say. I'm going to shut up now. Let the yeah. other people talk. Yeah, let, let me, we just brought Ellen on. Uh, Ellen, I know, has some active thoughts about this. And uh, do you want to butt, butt in before Ellen gets going again? With any comments or questions, Ellen? Uh, well, one is just really looking at this in the broad specter of how do we want to assign responsibility and we encourage the automakers who have, you know, the best way to ways to ensure. As, okay. as, uh, as possible. Right. So, so how does, how do, how do we structure insurance so that we don't take away those incentives for the automakers to make it as safe as possible so that you reduce the amount of misbehaving. Um, uh, I mean, we, we try, we try to blend the victims a lot, but a lot of it is the way that the, uh, that the roads are structured, that the, uh, that the vehicles are structured. So I think that we want to put as much responsibility on the, on the makers uh, as we can. How do we do that? Do the, I, I assume I, I the insurance I companies talked? I didn't hear part of that 
That was all. To the insurance to the insurance companies leverage the uh, OEMs. Yeah, is the is the responsibility going to shift from the driver to the car manufacturer, and 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 most likely it's going to happen somehow. Uh, because of, of the technology uh, that needs to be insured. So, so I think the, whoever manufactures the car, and, and that's a long story because it's not only the car manufacturers, you know, car mm-hmm. manufacturers tend to be more assemblers than, than, than real manufacturers and designers of the entire car. I mean, uh, there's going to be a, an interesting liability chain discussion here around that. But the, the idea is that, it's true that if the car does a mistake with the technology in the car does a mistake, then it's no longer the driver who's responsible. And that's why I mentioned before that we need to have access to that information in case of an accident, you know, who was driving at that point in time. Jacques, I think what you've just described, it's very similar to the way auto insurance works today. Yeah, of course. You know, if there is a, an issue with the technology in the car, you know, if the, the braking system fails, the transmission system fails, and, it, and, you know, there's a process called subrogation where, you know, the True. insurance company will set – the insurance framework is set up, the claim is settled, and the, the policyholder is, is made whole. And then, however, then on, behind the scenes, the insurance carrier then goes after the OEM. So that, that process of subrogation exists It, it does. It, it does, Mike, but, but the issue is that in most cases, it is much easier to say it's a driver's mistake than, you know, do a deep investigation to figure out whether well, the yeah. car had a failure or not. Because when you have an accident, it may very well be that you've tried to brake, but the brakes were not efficient as they should be. And that could be a design problem. That could be a maintenance problem. So we tend to say, you know, I'm, I'm back to these 95% or 94% accidents due to, to, to human, human mistakes, which is, I'm sure that in those 95%, there is a bunch of them which are technology or mechanical or design mistakes that we have not been investigating just because the system works in that way. Mm-hmm. But, but, but what the insurance industry hasn't done to try to get the OEMs to do a better job is they haven't gone out there and the get-go and flow haven't gone out there and says, we've determined uh, that, uh, darn it, the Subarus really work and the stuff on eyesight on Subaru really works. And, uh, Jane, if you happen to have a 16-year-old kid who's going to drive, you should go out and buy that kid that car because not only are we going to give you a discount on that, we're going to save that kid's life. They haven't done that. They haven't gone out there and really led to get OEMs to put vehicles out there that are going to save teenagers' lives. Well, I think, I, you know, just to IIHS, which is funded exactly. by the insurance industry, um, you know, they do, you know, the craft safety rating, they're, they're factoring ADAS into the work they're doing now, um, exactly. you know, I know, you know, look, I know their study they published recently was not the most popular and we could probably have a separate <laughs> debate on that. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, you know, that aside, I mean, a lot of the work that they've done is to measure the effectiveness of this technology. And again, that's all funded by the insurance industry. Yeah. So, Alan, they say that we're not doing anything to help promote, you know, it's... No, we, 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 oh, we, we have one in the house. <laughs> Didn't say you didn't do anything. I just want you to do more. Back to to Ellen's point. Um, She asked, you know, how can we 
how can we see that manufacturers are, you know, improving the product and making uh, uh, automobiles safer, no matter whether they're uh, using ADAS or to full autonomy. And we asked the people that we interviewed about different models of insurance. And we asked them about the status quo. We asked them about, well, what about no fault? Interestingly, the majority of people we interviewed said that the, there were many problems with no fault that are well known. One of the key concerns was that it would relieve manufacturers of the need to do better, mm-hmm. to improve the product. And so we thought that was, that was certainly a, a key concern. So Ellen, that's, you know, back to your point. Yes, there was a brief period of time in the, I think, the 1980s when pollution insurance was outlawed in some states because the idea was that if you had pollution insurance, then you would pollute. Um, and I, it, that, was quickly, that was quickly done away with. Uh, but I think that it really is figuring out how do we structure insurance so that it covers losses and at the same time uh, encourages safety. Uh, and I, I, I think that there's ways of tinkering it and bundling it um, that, uh, that, that could be done better, that the private insurance market could do that better, better than the government in some respects. Jane, Jane, it looks like you're about to say something. Did I? No? I wasn't. Sorry to be okay. misleading, okay. Dick. Hey, Dick, can we get – there's a few questions in the chat about cyber, and I know we're – got six minutes left or so but you know can, can we spend a few yeah. minutes on that because I, I think that's absolutely a- no I'm, I, that's right. you, you can't stay for the next half hour yeah um, it's a brand new insurance I, it, how, how does that handle yeah no it's, it's interesting i mean you know so if you look back on you know just cyber insurance overall i mean you know 20 25 years ago there, there was no such thing about of cyber insurance for businesses um you know it's now a you know depending on the analyst report you read that it's a five to 10 to $20 billion market, you know, that's grown mm-hmm. up, you know, in the past generation. So it's now the highest risk, the biggest yeah, risk right. for insurance companies. Cyber. Yeah, yeah. Jacques with your IOT hat on, you know, <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Cyber <laughs> yeah. became the first, the, the first risk, the, the biggest risk for insurance companies. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and, you know, some of the questions I've seen in the, in the chat here asking, okay, you know, look, as you know, and it's not just as you move into level four, level five um, autonomous vehicles, but, you know, really it's any type of connected vehicle. If you're connecting a vehicle, that thing becomes a computer on wheels and then the cyber exposure grows within that vehicle. And I think one thing that the industry is starting to look at is, you know, well, how do we handle that? And what are the risks there that are covered by an existing policy, you know, and you know, with what we would call silent cyber, where we, we're covering it already, versus uh, where are there new types of exposures that are not covered? And, you know, it, it is... Has there ever been a cyber claim? Or is this all in the future? No, has there's it? a lot of them. Yeah. Okay. There's a lot of them. There, there's cyber insurance policies and there's cyber claims, uh, a, a lot of them. But m- maybe to, to, to make the link with the topic that we were discussing, uh, you know, about automation and so forth, uh, not only cyber, 
I would say, but but part of the of the design of the software of the car and 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 all the uh, I would not say the electronics because it's hardware. It's a different story. But software, AI, whatever you implement, also needs to have its own insurance, its own insurance coverage, and that's not the OEM's responsibility because that's not the OEM's design. This is the design of the providers of the OEM. So theoretically, the provider of the OEM should have his liability insurance in case he produces a bad design. And the OEM has also its own insurance in case it produces a bad product. So, and, and this is what builds the link. Now, when it comes to cyber, at least in Europe, if I may um, add at this point, is in Europe we are... And I, and I think it's also valid for, for the rest of the world because it's a, it's a UN discussion. Uh, there, there's a cybersecurity framework that is being uh, built and, and that is being shared. So it doesn't tell exactly which, I would say, technology or which, uh, which thing you need to implement in your vehicle, but definitely it provides a framework to ensure that when you design your vehicle, you have made sure that you have looked at all the possible vulnerabilities, all the threats, that you have ways to mitigate them, that you have ways to detect them, and so on and so forth. And, and, and that's a very, I would say, uh, complex topic. It's another meeting in itself, I would say, cyber insurance, because, yeah. <laughs> of, the, because of all the, all the possibilities that you have around that. Uh, but, but indeed, because a car is connected, you open another area of, uh, of attack, and this area of attack can become a, a, a problem, especially if, if hackers decide to attack uh, an entire fleet of vehicles. That, that can be a, a disaster, you know, it's, uh, that can be something very bad. So we, we have to make sure those things don't happen. So, so we have another two or three minutes to go before our hour's over. We will stay on afterwards and keep trying to address questions. I know... Michael has to leave and probably Carlin as well. So I was going to say, do you guys have any last minute comments or questions before we switch to the extra half hour when you guys are gone? Yeah. Um, I would just like to say that in response to what Jacques just described, interestingly at the autonomous vehicle symposium of which Jane is a co-chair, our legal committee is going to be presenting a mock trial remotely of the very scenario of an attack on an autonomous vehicle fleet set some the near future and it will be a trial to see who is going to be compensated for all of the damage from havoc after this cyber attack so join us yeah with pleasure stay (laughs) tuned um, and uh, th- thanks for mentioning that, Carlin. It's a, it's important to know about these opportunities at the Automated Vehicle Symposium. I have a question for Jacques and Mike. Um, it's it's uh, important to see the role that insurance plays in the future of highly automated vehicles. My question to you is a closing question. How can insurance participate in a way that helps to accelerate uh, the introduction of highly automated vehicles into the public domain? Mike, you go first. Huh? Yeah, you no, to go before. You know, I, I would say, you know, going back, you know, 
I think it was five years ago at, at the autonomous vehicle, automated vehicle symposium. You know, the, all the rage was insurance is a barrier toward the adoption of autonomous vehicles. And um, I think the next year I gave a talk on why insurance is not a barrier to autonomous vehicles because we created a policy, as have other carriers. And it's something that, you know, Jane, I don't think there's go, there is some, one magic barrier that's sitting there toward the adoption of highly automated vehicles that the insurance industry is standing in, in the way of. I think our coverages will continue to evolve as the technology and as the business models evolve. I, I look at some of what we were covering four years ago compared to what we're doing now. And it, it's, I don't think it's necessarily an insurance coverage issue. I don't think it, it's necessarily even a, a limits or a capacity is, issue. Um, yeah, I think what you're going to see over time is that the policies will evolve, but then so will some of the risk management services, uh, you know, that complement the policy will evolve there. You know, as Jacques said, you know, there, there's got to be some collaboration and cooperation between the carrier and the insured. And, you know, very similar to the way you insure in a a large property or an expensive object, you know, there's a risk inspection, there's loss control services and things like that built around the policy. I think that's what you're going to see continue to happen around um, autonomous vehicles. And, and at Munich Re, we're hoping and working to help accelerate that process. Michael, I, I don't think you're going far enough. I think, Michael, I absolutely <laughs> I agree. <laughs> I absolutely need you to stand by me when I talk to the folks in the neighborhoods of Trenton and in city council and with the mayor saying that there is a a, a legitimate insurer who will, in case some, you know, as we've all said, we're not going to stop crashes. They're going to have things are going to happen. It's going to stand by and make people whole. Well, and I've been you provided you know, I, I've been in Trenton with you. Come on. <laughs> I know, I know. And you are. And I'm saying you're absolutely you're absolutely critical. You're absolutely critical to making to, to having a welcoming environment for this technology so it can provide the good that it's supposed to provide. Absolutely critical. Look on that note, you know, Alan look I'll go to Trenton with you anytime. We'll put on masks on. We'll go down there and we'll talk. But look, I, I apologize. Um, I didn't realize we were going to go over the hour, and I do have an yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we, yeah. But thank we, you. We're officially we officially ended one hour, but we'll, yeah. all, come, thank, we'll all be here afterwards. So stay tuned. This has been insurance for or against smart driving cars. Thank you to our panel for a very informative discussion, to say the least. Our series of debates and discussions will continue in the coming weeks. We welcome your thoughts about topics and participants. You can find us at zoom-tank.com and at smartdrivingcar.com. The Automated Vehicle Symposium is still slated for the end of July. It will be a virtual conference. The info is at automatedvehiclesymposium.org. Thank you for taking part, for watching, listening, and we hope you stay healthy and safe.